You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. So hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to introduce you to Polly Hamilton Hilsebeck. Polly was in the second wave of women-ordained priests in the Episcopal Church, her book, American Blues, is available wherever books are sold. And here today to talk about that and so much more is Polly Hamilton Hilsebeck. Welcome to Unquirking a Story, Polly. Thanks for having me, Mike. Well, I'm happy to have you here. Excited to have you here. And I'm going to ask you the, the question I ask everybody out of the gate, which is, Polly, where does your story begin? Probably when I was a baby being taken to the library. <laughs> uh, I had uh, two older siblings, one younger. and. Uh, our family were all active um, library card holders, and probably baby was there, of course, being read to stories. My dad was a great storyteller. And uh, in Mrs. Wittrig's first grade class, uh, I think she liked my stories and and then in third grade mrs johnson even had me go around the class and help other students with their writing so i was i was like the teacher's assistant <laughs> a lot yeah, a lot of pressure but certainly a, a compliment as well yeah and so the point is i think i've i've always written um but in 2000 is when I started writing American Blues. I finished it two years later. And it's interesting that I hardly changed a thing in the story. I eliminated some parts of it that made it too bulky. Um, but it did not find a readership until uh, present day. Yeah. Well, I want to learn uh, learn more about that, but I don't want to skip over um, what I think would be a very important part of your story, which is uh, becoming, you know, ordained as a, an Episcopal priest. Tell me what, you know, I, I know you you were writing from an early age, but uh, just fill in that story for me a little bit. Um, when did you know that you wanted to, to enter the priesthood? Um, we were living in Central California, Fresno to be exact, which is the Diocese of San Joaquin. And um, that became a secessionist diocese. The bishop there would not ordain women. I, my, my family and I attended a, a, a really progressive parish, St. Columbus, and the senior warden the lay leader of the vestry, which is comparable to a parish council. Um, when it came time for the vestry to sign their names to a form so that I could proceed with the process out of the Diocese of Los Angeles, I was referred to the Diocese of Los Angeles by the Bishop of San Joaquin um, when it came time for my own parish leadership to 
sign the documents. Um, the senior warden was very wise. He had the vestry vote on whether to vote to consider me, which allowed the conversation to go on. And in knowing that the church has ways of proceeding if it's locally blocked. Um, so I wouldn't be, mm, my call wouldn't be halted. So the, the conversation happened and curiously, a couple people who were um, very supportive of women being ordained priests uh, were out of town. So that really gave this freedom uh, to the vestry assembled that night to just talk about it. And it is akin to what I hope for my novel. Uh, I'm always asked, well, what's, what's the message? It really isn't a message, it's a story. I hope that readers become involved and, and their experience comes to the fore uh, and that they interact with the story of American blues. I went from the Diocese of San Joaquin to, well, as I said, I was, I was referred by the then Bishop, Victor Rivera, who could only call me darling and honey when I went to his office. Oh, and I asked him, well, what, what, do, what, what do other women do? Because um, I asked him, am I the first one that's come to you? Um, claiming a call to ordain ministry, the first woman. And he said, yes. And I said, well, what do you think the other women do? He said, well, I don't know. Uh, and here he was the bishop. And while I was there, he phoned Robert Rusak, the bishop of the Diocese of Los Angeles, who had held to opposition of women's ordination until a year before. So I was in Bishop Revere's office listening to this conversation between the brother bishops. And uh, again, he, could, he, I, he says, I have this darling, darling girl in my office. The fascinating thing is Victor Rivera's daughter, own daughter, uh, was in seminary in Berkeley and uh, was ordained. He didn't go to her ordination. And then she was consecrated Bishop of Olympia. And his uh, brother and brother bishops uh, really kind of forced him to, to come. Um, so the Diocese of Los Angeles supported me wholeheartedly. It's a rigorous process um, of several stages of discernment. And uh, then my family and I moved to Oakland, California, so I could attend the Church Divinity School of the Pacific in Berkeley. It's part of a consortium of graduate theological schools. So I've done uh, jail ministry, school ministry, parish ministry, hospital ministry. I was the first chaplain at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, premier pediatric hospital, research teaching hospital. And I created the program there. And that was really exciting ministry because we had all sorts of faith streams and faith traditions, and uh, it was really wonderful. Yeah, I know we uh, you know we refer to to it as a calling, um, kind of calling to to ordained life. 
Um, it must have been a pretty strong calling given all of the roadblocks, you know, that, that were put in front of you. Um, how did that calling manifest itself? Um, you know, when you were younger, when you were going through this process, like, how did, how did you know? Um, it's, it's, it's kind of like the road to Emmaus. Did our hearts not burn? The Jesus's friends were saying, did our hearts not burn? Um, I, I just had the sense it's kind of wacky because I was a biology major. I intended to get my PhD and MD, um, do clinical work and research on the neuromuscular junction. Um, but, you know, a, a, a different um, landscape, I guess, emerged of uh, what I might do. And so I kept following it. And, and along the way, of course, there were so many kind of mystical intersections of people that I'd meet. And uh, one woman became my friend, uh, was introduced through a mutual friend was so excited oh I'm gonna call them up to come over and have dinner uh, we were up in the Bay Area business and this family that we had known in Fresno Central California had moved to the Bay Area so we were having dinner with them and um, and just out of the blue she says oh you know, our good friends from Air Force days are here because uh, Kitty, Kitty Lehman, is going to start seminary. And uh, wow, she, did, she didn't know that I had any kind of wonderings, any thoughts about ordination. And so she had the layman's come over and it turns out that Kitty's birthday and mine are the same day and her husband's were a day apart. And you could say, oh, well, so what? But it, it is, it is a, hmm, gives you pause. And so she kind of mentored me, invited me to come up to Berkeley uh, from Fresno and, you know, spend a couple of days there see what it was like so uh, it was a wonderful experience um, uh, the first female Asian American uh, to be ordained an Episcopal priest was in seminary at the same time as I was and she's one of my best friends uh, Fran Toy. She's 87 years old now, still lives in Oakland. She grew up in Chinatown, Oakland. Anyway, she's, she and I started the women's interest group at night. And then uh, we actually got, got credit. We, we um, proposed a course for credit and we invited different uh, women clergy and women religious, also Catholic women religious, and uh, uh, speak with us. Uh, I'm sure they had a lot to say. Yeah, I mean, this is just the nascent time, even though I was in the second wave, uh, this was still just all new territory. Yeah, and Mike, I, I have noted that a uh, strong part of your identity is your ministry with St. Leo. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. St. Leo. Um, <laughs> speaking of parish councils, um, that, was, that was my Monday night <laughs> was, uh, was that. And we have this big, um, you know, in the Catholic Church now, the Pope has called for a synod on, it sounds crazy, a synod on syn synodity. I can't even pronounce it. Um, but I had to, I had to run a bunch of, uh, focus groups and, and things like that, um, within the parish, uh, about, 
kind of the direction of of the church and, and that's what i do for a living is run focus groups outside of yeah. outside of this podcast and yeah. um, that was a fascinating uh fascinating experience and uh, i hope they do something with all the output we put together but um i hope it wasn't just an academic exercise but that yeah that is a big part of of uh, of my life and um you know, it's interesting. My wife is Episcopal, um, so we were raised in different faith traditions. And the first time I ever came across a, um, an ordained uh, woman priest was was at her parish, a woman named uh, Molly McGreevy, who I think has since passed. Um, but um, but yeah, one of her... there there are six Episcopal churches in Stamford. There are, yeah, there are. This one is uh, Saint Francis, which um, hmm. is a beautiful, beautiful church. Her parents were very involved in that. Um, and it's, uh, they've got a new church and an old church. And, uh, I, I, pretend, I actually like the, the old church a little bit better. It's a little bit more quaint. Um, but, uh, you and your wife are like my husband and me, uh, my husband, David is the second of 12 kids, large Catholic family. His dad was a surgeon and, uh, um, you know, I grew up in a Presbyterian family. And interesting that my siblings and I uh, ended up with uh, Catholic spouses. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's funny. The first time I went to her her um, church for for a service, I I went home to my mother, who would of course tell me it didn't count. So I'd still have to go, you know, again because it doesn't count. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and. Uh, I'm like, they say this, it's the same mass. I mean, with very few, I mean, now that the differences are a little bit because we, we went through a whole change in liturgy about 10 years ago, but um, down to the, the creed, the, the structure of the mass, I mean, it is yeah. exactly the same. Although um, I always point out to my wife that um, they were a lot less shy about asking, um, you know, during the collection for, for money. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> bit more of a hard sell. Huh. Um, but uh, no, it's the, it's, it's, the Episcopals. <laughs> <laughs> well, I the, my other joke was, you know, Episcopals are just rich Catholics. Um, <laughs> they're Catholics yeah. with money, is what I used to say. Yeah. Um, but no, it's uh, it's it's interesting, you know. Well, but figures in my book because um, as as the newly formed uh, colonies and then the United States of America. Um, as the USA went, so did the Protestant Episcopal Church of the USA to that long name was to distinguish it from the Church of England from whence it came. And, you know, that whole history is interesting because uh, we were a country that rebelled and rose up against British rule. And so decisions that are made in the Episcopal Church are prominent. They're prominent internationally. So that's, that, that's another feature of my novel. And really the American story, I feel does center on race, gender and church. Well, let's 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 uh, not waste any more time and talk about American blues. Um, you mentioned writing; you started it, or you no, know, you start and finished it almost two decades yes. ago. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So tell me what what moved you to uh, to start writing it. I was struck by here here we go again with black church burnings in the mid nineties, and the anemic response of uh, the government really to investigate and to name. Uh, the criminal uh, racist activity. Synagogues were burned too and vandalized. Um, and I was struck by how Clinton was president at the time, how international terrorism, the first time that that term had been used, collided with what I was calling at that time, now more people are, people in the past have called it domestic terrorism. But I didn't hear that so much until mm, 2020. 
mm-hmm. more, more in 2020. And then the sort of legal issues around using domestic terrorism. I saw that time as what was going on internationally and named as international terrorism uh, intersecting with what was going on in this country, the violence that was going on in this country, uh, all meant to intimidate. And so I actually began the book with a character. Uh, And the scene that appears in book three, you know, my novel is divided into three books. So a scene that appears in book three, uh, but I can't give it away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we definitely Um, don't want to do that. Of the back of this character, as is recognized by the main character, and um, but that got put into the later part of the story, figured into the later part of the story. And, uh, oh, here's a really interesting thing that happened, Mike. So started writing in, let's say, September 2000. And spring of 2001, I got myself invited to the family reunion of my former neighbor on the alley in Oakland, California. Laura Combs. She's a very private person. Uh, She grew up in Birmingham and she knew that I was writing the story. In fact, she read the first part of it. And she said, yeah, yeah. Uh, In fact, uh, my sister and I were gonna meet up first and then go to Birmingham. And so she and her sister, Bonnie, who came from the Atlanta area, and I, who came from Maui, uh, we met up in Charleston. But I was the first one to arrive. I checked into our hotel and I took off walking. Uh, I think I was wearing a pair of capri pants and a sleeveless shirt. It was really hot and humid. And I ended up at Mother Emanuel Church. Um, and I, 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 I couldn't believe it. Here I am where Denmark Vesey, you know, began his kind of bloody campaign. So I, I, the, the, front door of the church was open. I walk in and I call out and nobody answered. And then the doors to the the sanctuary were open. Uh, We call it the nave. I walked in there. It actually reminded me very much of my Presbyterian church in Iowa. Uh, And I just was kind of in awe of where I was and all the history, come back out of the nave, call out again, nobody answers. And then uh, I notice there are stairs. I go downstairs and here is the scene that I had written, imagined and written following the lynching that's not a spoiler because it's in the back of my book. Yeah, yeah. Um, here's this scene of about six women in their nylon stocking feet in the kitchen preparing the repast, the meal after the funeral. They were actually from a different church, but their church was being renovated. So they were using Mother Emmanuel. They had the service there and everybody was off at the graveside uh, committal service to return any minute. 
and her name was Evelyn. And Evelyn said, uh, you know, make yourself a plate because they were uh, bringing dishes out to the table as I describe, as I had written, um, you know, sometime before I made this trip. Um, and I said, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm not dressed properly. I know that. Um, I, I, I wouldn't want to be disrespectful um, because I know people at the funeral are uh, dressed to the nines. And she says, no, 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 yeah, I, I, I want you to stay. I want you to meet people. Because I, I had told her that I was, was writing a book about race and gender and that there is a scene of women in the kitchen preparing the repast for the Episcopal Church, the Black Episcopal Church sexton that is lynched. So there's a service at the Episcopal Church where he's the sexton. Then the next day, there's the memorial at Sam Jefferson's church. And uh, I said, no, 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 that, that's okay. And so I, I just visited with the women some more. They were so delightful. And then I, I took off. Across the street was um, historic uh, Black uh, funeral um, service. And, you know, they wore white gloves and mourning uh, coats. Um, uh, to, to attend to the um, deceased in the service. And I talked with them uh, for about 20 minutes, came out, started heading back to kind of town and uh, Evelyn or Evie. So I, I changed the name of my book to her name. She's named after Evelyn. And the church is named after their church. She comes running after me and, well, hustling after me with a full plate, aluminum foil over it. She says, here, you can at least take this, Polly. And it was, it was the same thing, broccoli and cheese, turkey leg. And just blew my mind. Yeah, it sounds um, like a like a mystical intersection, like you were talking about before. I mean, this is sort of you know art, life imitating art at this point. It it was like I entered into my novel story. Yeah, it was just that cinematic. Then when we went to Birmingham, um, Laura said well, we're going to do something special. We're going to go to 16th Street Baptist Church. And I said, good, because I was going to suggest that because Blanton, one of the Klan members who had lit the pipe bomb at 16th Street Baptist and, and killed the uh, teenage girls, uh, his hit his sentencing had just happened. He went to trial and he was sentenced. And so uh, I think it was on a Tuesday. And so we went, we attended 16th Street Baptist that Sunday. Um, that was incredible to be in that space. Um, and then, you know, I spent the time poking around Birmingham with Laura and we stayed with another one of her sisters who had never had any white people stay with her. Um, and she had a party for uh, 
her and Laura's sorority. And so I got to meet some more sorority women um, from the Birmingham area. And it was just an amazing trip. Um, oh, and uh, met up with Laura's best friend from kindergarten, who's Catholic. Um, Betty and her husband, Nate, were to be married at uh, Baptist Church. They decided to speed up their wedding and or their marriage. And they had heard about this pastor and they, they wanted to elope. So they go to the pastor's house at night, his wife, uh, Coretta Scott King answers the door. They were married by Martin Luther King. Oh my goodness. They became Catholic, Mike. And uh, Betty uh, took me and Laura to her uh, Catholic, it, it, it's a black church. Uh, we're still so segregated um, in Birmingham and introduced me to Johnny. She wanted me to write Johnny's story and I said, well, this is about all I can handle. I wish I could. Johnny hid in a garbage can and watched police uh, shooting uh, a black friend in downtown Birmingham. Um, and he had just many, many stories. Um, so that, that trip was incredible. Yeah. Um, so in the, in the years that passed between finishing the book and it coming out, um, earlier yeah. this year, um, yeah. what, what was the, I mean, did you, what was your oh, thought process? Did you feel it just it. wasn't ready or? Yeah, I, I thought it's ready because, you know, it should always be ready because this is an American story. Uh, you know, we, we have a legacy of violence that continues. And just recently, you know, Buffalo and Uvalde, uh, um, and you and I could name many, 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 many. You're too many. Acts too many. of violence. It's, it's just too many. Um, uh, it, I, I even had ICM take a look at it. Amanda Urban was the, the, one of the main literary agents at the time. Too controversial. Hmm. And this was um, 20 years ago. It was too, it was too, yeah, too controversial. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And uh, in fact, uh, she took a look at, I think, book one. She probably had somebody that worked for her read it. Yeah, it's usually <laughs> and, how that works. Um, uh, an ICM film agent uh, out of Los Angeles looked at it, he said it would be a perfect film because um, film is a medium that you can take, you know, different multiple threads and show them. Uh, and he said, he gave me the advice, he said, make sure whoever reads your book, agents, or early on, you could query publishers, but that soon changed make sure they read the whole book. They need to read the whole book to get the whole story. Uh, so I, I kept a, um, you know, flow sheet. Um, and I uh, went up to, um, what is it? Uh, uh, 2020. Uh, and um, you know, she writes press, uh, took it on. But uh, I, I got a lot of good looks. I got, you know, the whole manuscript requested. And yeah, that's, that's a big win right there. Is that that? Oh, it's <laughs> the huge. exception more you, than you the rule for so it's, many it's, people. It's yeah. Huge. Like Kurt, Curtis Brown um, took a look at my whole manuscript and um, very, uh, very, you know, high on the story, the characters, the way I wove in history, which 
It's very accurate. Um, and they said, ultimately, we wish it would be more nuanced. And I could just hear this in sort of British uh, accent, you know, when it more nuanced. And I wrote back and I said, well, you know, this is an American story. There's nothing really in America that's nuanced. You cannot nuance lynching. There were, these were just the ones reported, right? 4,700 lynchings between 1882 and 1968. And, um, and then the many forms of lynching, there's nothing nuanced about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, pardon, pardon the expression, but it is a black and white issue. I mean, there's, there's not a lot of gray area when you're talking about yeah. those acts of violence towards other human beings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That we can buy and sell people, we can cut their tongues out because they learned how to read. We can, uh, you know, rape women to produce more uh, slaves. Um, and then, and then sell off, sell off your kid. Um, and only if they're whiter, you know, maybe take an interest in them. Uh, one of my characters is, is named after the youngest of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings kids. Oh, interesting. The youngest of, the, they had six kids together. So, um, and I, I really like him. It's Uncle Eston. Uncle Eston. He's, he's the uncle of the bridegroom. Yeah. So I, I know the initial reception of the book has been positive, just based on the reviews I've been reading anyway. Um, you know, in your mind, how, how is the book being received? Same. I, I'm, I'm just thrilled. And people are confirming, again, what I had hoped for the book, that it will further continue, enhance the conversation of you know, people excavating their own lives, just, just by reading the story, uh, things come up. Um, and it, people have a lot to say. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna be teaching through Duke's continued studies. Uh, you've probably heard of the OLLI program, Osher Lifelong Learning Institute. Yeah. Different campuses. Uh, I'm going to do a course writing about race and gender, and I'm going to use my book as the reference. Um, so we'll be reading segments of the book together, and um, people will be using any genre. Uh, poetry, essay, fiction, nonfiction, uh, to mine their own experience and get it in writing and, uh, and, and share that with each other. So I'm really looking forward to that. And we're going to do it in person unless there's another big surge of COVID. Yeah, I was supposed to teach in person in January, but uh, uh, it had to go to virtual. And I, I decided not to do that. It, it's enough to ask people. It's it's such a it's such a rich and complicated arena writing about race and gender. That I wanted to do it in person. Uh, it'll be better in person. Yeah, so those things are hard to do virtually. I taught a, a marketing course last fall, and it was in person, but we still had to have everyone had to have masks on. Um, so the students couldn't really hear me. I couldn't really hear them. Uh, nobody really won in that situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it just makes it too hard mechanically. It's just too hard. Yeah. So, so we pulled it. And, uh, so I think it'll, uh, be offered in late, late September, beginning of October. I think yeah. September. I think it's when it starts up. I'm really looking forward to that. There'll just be maybe a dozen people. And we meet at um, uh, Judea Reform, the synagogue, 
No, very cool. Uh, one one of the synagogues here. Very in, cool. In Durham, yeah. Huh. Well, you've got a you've got a, a a book that deals with race, gender, and social justice, and I, I can't think of any better time in in history for than than for people to, you know, absorb those themes right now. Um, just given all that's been been going on, um, you know, the past couple of years have been turbulent to say the least. Um, especially with um, with race and and you know gender is always uh, always an issue um, as well. So this is a, a a very timely book. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting that um, a lot of white fiction uh, doesn't really deal explicitly with race, though. That that is our reality. <laughs> especially in America. Um, and also the assignment of Amazon of Black and African American historical fiction to my book. Really, it's American historical fiction. Right. No, it's not Black or white. Just like uh, the, the oddity that you go in a bookstore and you don't say, where's the men's fiction? <laughs> right. It, it doesn't exist, Yeah. but it does exist. Um, so we, we have all these peculiar, and that's an old word from uh, the peculiar institution of slavery. That, that word was used. We still have that peculiarity of, of dividing up. And also Amazon assigned African historical fiction to my book. So it raises the question about, is it assumed that white people mostly read white authored books, black people read black authored books. And well, some of that is true. In 2020, when Britt Bennett was being interviewed for her book, The Vanishing Half, she said that if it hadn't been released a week after George Floyd's murder, it would have been dismissed as another women's fiction um, she was so surprised and somebody was telling her it's the only race fiction, quote unquote, race fiction out. And she's had readers come up to her, white readers saying, oh, this is the first time I read black authors. So isn't that wonderful? Mm. Um, but, and isn't that surprising? We are educated people reading these books are educated most college educated um even if that weren't the demographic you know hopefully everybody uh will read my book um but she had so many people come up to her saying the oh white white readers especially saying yeah, I, I'm going to have to read more Black authors. And, um, and she was like, it just blew her mind. Every, every day was, uh, was a learning. And I think that's happening with me. The, the assignment of that genre or subgenre to, to my book and... Um, the other white author in that category is Sue Monk Kidd. The Invention of Wings and the Secret Life of Bees, mm -hmm. which are still bestsellers. So hopefully I'll have some traction over the long haul. Yeah, I imagine, I, you know, with... With your book sort of fitting into um, that segment of Am for Amazon anyway, uh, and then people see your picture as the author, um, I imagine there might be some surprise there too. Um, not saying that that's a positive thing, but 
um, you know, I think they might might catch people off guard. Have, have you have you heard any anything right. like it, that? It 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 can go either way, Mike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not yet. Um, I've had some interviews with with black interviewers, and that's been great. Uh, one said, um, "Your your story is so contemporary," and he was thinking the writing process, publishing process. I probably wrote it five years ago and you know, by the time I sold it and da, da, da. Um, But then, oh, and he said, before I told him, he said, now that's good because it's relatable to contemporary readers. Uh, but he, he said, I also gotta say, it's really sad he was also referring to the span of decades that the story covers. And then when I said, well, it's even more interesting because I started writing this in 2000, late 2000 and finished it two years later. So the story is not just, you know, four years old. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. It, it's, it's as contemporary as it is thinking about it being 20 years. Um in the past. You like to think that we've made some progress in 20 years, but um, but something so institutionalized, um, you know, 20 years is nothing. Right, right. And we, we, we have made changes. Um, but probably the change that needs to just be relentless is awareness. And then acting on that awareness, uh, I I saw driving through um, uh, you know Durham segregated like other places in America because of redlining, historic redlining. So you have um, you know large neighborhoods, communities uh, that are black neighborhoods predominantly. So I drive through black neighborhood and. I saw this sign again, and I'm reading it in a new way. Drive as though your kids live here. Not lived here. Drive as though your kids live here. And I thought, what a good adage that is for everything. You know, do this as if your kids. The operational word, I think, is your, your. And that could just apply to everything. Um, yeah. Uh, Paul, if you had to give your uh, your younger self some words of advice, um, you imagine you could mail a letter to uh, to your younger your younger self. Um, what are some words of advice you would give? You know, a young a young Polly. How would you reassure her? Um. Well, I'm going to say something different than uh, what what I might have said to you before, but um, I think I would tell myself to just write. Don't question uh, how good it is, uh, if it's uh, other people want to read it. Uh, just write. Don't don't spend time so much reading about writing but do read a lot, read, 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 and then write, write, write. Nobody can write what I write. Um, and I would just say too, to emulate people like uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who said, if you, want to change things you have to be with the people that hold the levers you you can't shy away and um now that was pretty much how i was as a girl and growing up and a young woman i i wasn't so cowed by um prominence and also she said uh 
don't be distracted by emotions like anger, envy, resentment. She said, these just zap energy and waste time. And as a woman, and then as a girl, you know, we women, we girls, we, we don't have any time to waste. Neither do men or boys. Uh, we, none, none of us have time to waste with emotions that'll just do you in. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I would say. There you go. Well, the book is American Blues. It's available wherever books are sold. Uh, the author, of course, is Polly Hamilton. Hell Sebeck, who we've been talking to now for almost an hour. I can't believe the time is flying. Um, Polly, any social media or websites that you want to um, you know, share yes. with everybody so people can, can uh, reach out and get in touch? Thanks, Mike. Yeah, it's just a www.myname, lowercase, pollyhamiltonhillsebeck.com. And I will be sure to put those in the show notes. So no one has to remember that. You can just look Thank into you. the show notes and, uh, and, and reach out. Uh, Polly, thanks so much for talking to me on, uh, on this Memorial Day as we're recording this. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much. This has been really enjoyable, Mike. Yeah, and uh, best with your healing. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.